Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And our special interview guest today is the Reverend Rochelle Goff, who is currently serving at Fairport United Methodist Church. And it's worth saying that there are, um, so there are deep roots between this podcast and Fairport, um, Mm -hmm. because both me and Emily interned there. And then um, a few weeks ago, we had Margaret Scott on this podcast. And a couple of weeks before that, we had West McNeil on this podcast. So the Fairport runs <laughs> strong in this podcast. It just keeps coming back. <laughs> so as all things do, they, it, it, actually, Margaret told us when she was, uh, when she was talking to us that um, the faith symbol that she resonates with the most is a spiral. And kind of like, think of like, kind of like a spring that gets narrower in the middle kind of spiral. Uh So you're constantly, as your faith journey goes on, you're revisiting the same things because you come back to the same point in the circle, but you're going deeper every time. So you're, you're, you're constantly coming back to the same places, but seeing and knowing and understanding more than you did last time around. Yeah which was a really cool faith symbol and Margaret is good for things like that. Yeah, definitely. That's very cool. I did not know that the other, the others were um, on the podcast as well. So that's oh, wonderful. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. I, th- I think you would enjoy those interviews very much. Yeah. I'll have to yeah. check them out. Yeah. Margaret talked to us about uh, spirituality and building a relationship with the divine. And then West talked to us about the poor people's campaign. So, yeah. Excellent. So, yeah. Um, The place that we always tend to start with these interviews is for you to share as much as you'd like to about your spiritual journey. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. And um, I... I'm honored that you asked me. Uh, I told my husband what what I was doing this morning before leaving. He's like, don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble. (laughs) I was like, when has that ever stopped me before? <laughs> it hasn't. That's why we asked you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and also, I, I think if, if we had this rule of don't say anything that'll get you in trouble, we wouldn't have a podcast. That's half the I fun. Know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he was half joking. <laughs> um, so a little bit about my spiritual journey. So I have, um, I, I was born into a United Methodist family and grew up at the Cicero United Methodist Church right outside of Syracuse. Um, and that's where my early years um, started off. We weren't a, a overly religious family, but my parents did bring me to Sunday school and we attended worship um, and gave me a great foundation uh, there. Um, and then uh, when I was confirmed, I sort of used that as a uh well, I don't have to go to church anymore Um, and sort of stopped attending Sunday school and just kind of fell away from the church a little bit. Um, Well, a lot, I guess you could say, and uh, ended up going to St. Lawrence University for my undergrad um, and went there for three years, was working on uh, my bachelor's and I wanted to somehow go into social work. I knew I wanted to help people. And so that was the plan was I was a psych major and I was going to be a social worker. Um, and my whole world just sort of came crashing in on me. Um, my junior year, everything was sort of not falling into place. Um, and I was just started questioning everything in life and, um, was floundering, was having some anxiety issues. Um, I was very uncomfortable with me and my skin, um, just, you know, who I was and just really struggling and got to a point where I was like, well, I don't know what else to do except for maybe God can help me. (laughs) So I started praying, um, uh, for the first time in my life, like really praying, um, and found that it was, um, it was very helpful and, uh, 
at the same time, I was starting an internship with um, the St. Lawrence um, County um, Renewal House. It was a domestic violence agency. And I was interning there. Um, and it happened to be right across the street from the United Methodist Church. Coincidence um, or not. And uh, I had to contact the pastor over there for some kind of dinner. We were going to be using their fellowship hall. And the pastor happened to be um, a, pa a pastor I knew who was actually my pastor at Cicero. Um, and it was very interesting um, to, to start that relationship um, that way. I just feel like God sort of put all these different pieces, started fitting together. Um, and, and he was like, so Rochelle, you're going to come to the college dinners. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, eventually I, I, we did a few of my friends started going to college dinners. And then as I was still having some of these issues, um, um, just kind of connecting to the local church and to that pastor was really important. Um, and then one day I was sitting on a picnic table, um, really sort of crying out to God, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Like, what is the next step? Like this, nothing is, I don't know what's going on here. And it was one of those moments where sort of like the heavens opened um, and the voice of God just sort of like said, Rochelle, you're going to be a minister. And I heard that very clearly. And then my first thought was, I'm going crazy. Like who hears voices like that? You know, like, I don't know what just happened, but it was really powerful. And I know I couldn't tell anyone about it right away. So I sort of sat with it for like a week. And then I was like, no, this isn't going away. Like there's something like who would make that up? <laughs> like, um, and so I reached out to the pastor at the Canton United Methodist church, who was my former pastor, um, Jim Brand and said, and said, you know, I had this experience. I think I need to talk to someone about it. And he said, my door's open come talk. So I mustered up the courage to go in and talk to him and the tears. Local church and, uh, was, it was just, you know, it, it was wonderful. And I became a student intern, um, at the church. We applied to, um, I applied to United Methodist seminaries and just started, you know, switching my, my whole plan for life, uh, went from social work to, to ministry and not really never reading the Bible all the way through to jumping into seminary. Um, so, uh, but that local church was very, very, um, influential and helpful, um, in affirming my call and nurturing me. And Jim himself, um, was extremely gracious. And, uh, my last Sunday there, he preached on, um, all the wonderful ways women are in ministry and why we need them in ministry. And that's always been so powerful for a church who at that point, I don't believe it ever had ever had a female minister. Um, and yeah, so that that was wonderful to to be able to be, you know, kind of uh, commissioned into seminary from that church. And then I went, I was, um, I went to the Methodist Theological School in Ohio, which is the youngest of all the United Methodist seminaries, um, and uh, had a wonderful four years there. Um, but right from the get-go, I felt inadequate. Um, I did not feel like I was a good enough Christian. I felt like I didn't know enough about Bible. I just questioned everything like why I, I, this was not the place for me. I, what did I get myself into? And so I came home after a few weeks to be in a wedding and, um, and I had planned in my head, like when I was home for the wedding, I was going to just tell my parents that I was not going to go back. And this just wasn't for me. I didn't know enough, um, all of that. And for some reason I couldn't tell them. 
And so I finally, I get to the airport and this was the day before cell phones. Um, and I was, I had my quarter in my pocket, ready to call them to come get me. Um, you know, and if I was just, I had to muster up courage, um, to call them back and say, pick me up. And I, I couldn't make the phone call. I like just physically could not. And my feet walked me onto that plane sat me in that seat and brought me all the way back to Ohio. <clears throat> and I remember laying in my bed um, at seminary and I was crying out to God. Like, why am I here? Like, I did not want to be here. I did not willingly put myself on the plane and bring myself back here. Um, and I had a very clear voice again that said, you wouldn't be here if you weren't supposed to be here. Um, and so since that moment, that's always stuck with me um, to just trust that I'm where I need to be and make the best of it wherever I am. I may not know enough. I might be super young, um, but I'm here for a reason. And so I sort of had a confidence um, after that. And I worked at um, New Life United Methodist Church in Columbus for like three of those years, um, first as an intern, and then they hired me on as a student intern. Um, and they had a powerful inner city ministry um, with the homeless. And, um, and it was so outside of my comfort zone. I had to learn so much and every, every, every day that I was, I was in ministry there, um, was just stretching me. <laughs> um, and I learned so much and I had two wonderful coworkers, the senior pastor, um, Jennifer Kimball Castle, um, Casto was just amazing. Um, and I had, there was a deacon in, um, uh, an ordained deacon who I was working with as well, um, Brooke. And so Jennifer and Brooke and I were just, it was just wonderful to have them. Um, every Sunday, uh, Jennifer would sit down with me and we would unpack everything that happened on Sunday and talk theologically about it all. Um, and it was, it was just wonderful experience. Um, and so I ended my four years there and was appointed to Oswego Trinity and Martville United Methodist Churches, a two-point charge. Um, one was three quarters, one was one quarter, and I learned an awful lot about ministry in that first few years. Um, they were wonderful people, um, but the very first message I got from, uh, the first time I met someone from one of the churches was at annual conference, and the first conversation was, we didn't want you. That was the very first thing that came out of someone's mouth. Um, they, you know, they, they weren't sure what to do with a female pastor. Um, after having a bad, they had one bad experience with one in their opinion. And so they were a little hesitant and it didn't take long for us to have a really good relationship, but that was the first, that was the welcome I received. Um, and that has, so they, they knew they didn't want a female pastor, but they sort of changed their mind after a while. Um, and then I was appointed to Auburn United Methodist Church, um, where they didn't know what to do with a female pastor because they had never had one ever. So I was the first, um, and I began a, a decade of ministry at Auburn and we had, um, an amazing time there. And, um, I continued to learn more about ministry and myself and, um, met my husband, not not, he wasn't a parishioner, but I met him while I was, um, pastoring there and we ended up getting married and I had two children. Um, so they sort of, they grew with me. Um, we were, um, it was a really wonderful time. Um, and towards the end of my 10 years, um, it was, there was a lay led movement to, uh, start to explore what, um, what it might be to be a reconciling congregation. And I supported that and encouraged that, but stepped aside and let them <clears throat> really explore that themselves so that I wasn't pushing it. Cause they obviously, they knew where I stood. Um, and it, it really upset the waters there in ways that I never anticipated. Um, and that, that became a very, painful part of ministry to have so many people that I loved and cared for both, you know, on, from my perspective and they loved our family and 
And these are people who, who left the church, who came in and put their keys down on the table and said, we're out of here. We can't do this. Even just having the conversation. So it was significant because there was probably a good, like six or seven families that were like all in <clears throat> with church, um, powerful, wonderful lay, lay folks. And so it really was, um, it was really, it was a painful time in ministry, um, both personally and to walk a church through um, having these folks leave. Um, but it was also an amazing journey because, you know, when they leave their, their pocketbooks leave too, and it makes an impact on the finances and, and the leadership team, um, you know, I said, do you want to stop these conversations? Do you want to stop learning about what it means to be a reconciling congregation? You can, you can do that. That is okay to do. And they decided not to, not to stop and to continue the work, um, at least until I was through my time there. And that was, that was brave. And I applaud them for that. Um, and so I, I sort of felt like maybe it was time and God was calling me, you know, somewhere else. So I had told my district superintendent that, you know, there's, I, I love it here and I could continue to be in ministry and by no means am I saying I have to go, but if there is another place, um, you know, that I could serve, that would be the right place. Don't move me just to move me. Um, I would be open to that. I mean, we're always open to that, I guess. Um, but I'm more, <laughs> more open to that. Um, and that's what brought me to Fairport. I got a phone call and um, I've been here five years um, and it is, <clears throat> it is such a privilege to walk with a church and to be in ministry with a church that's a reconciling congregation and is it more in line with my theology. I just feel like I can be more authentically who I am and be more bold. Um, and so we've encouraged each other. Um, to be more that way. They've encouraged me and I've encouraged them. It's got us in a little trouble, um, gotten myself into a little trouble, um, but as you know, good trouble. Um, and so that's a little bit about where I am now. And, you know, we're really clear on who we are unapologetically inclusive. And we say that to every new member. Um, we have a new members class and a group that's joining in a few weeks. Um, and, you know, that's the first thing that comes out of my mouth is this is who we are, you know, and um, yeah, we're becoming a church where other churches are disaffiliating and people are finding a soft landing place here at Fairport and feel at home and welcomed um, and loved and um yeah, we're still trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, it, you know, post pandemic and the world is changing and the community is changing and the church is changing. Um, what does that look like? Um, and I've sort of, I, I felt very um, convicted annual conference this year with our new Bishop Hector um, kind of saying, you can't, no more excuses. We got to move forward. And that spoke very, very, um, powerfully to me and to, you know, the lay person that was with me that, you know, we don't have, we don't have to have it all figured out before we need start moving. And I think I just needed to hear that. And it really spoke to me like, okay, stop sitting. We don't know how things are all going to settle out and shake out. Um, but we need to move forward and start figuring this out. So, um, that was really powerful. And that's where we are. That's where I am right now. And in a pretty good place, even in the midst of all the craziness in our denomination and, and all of that, Fairport, we know who we are and we're trying to work for the United Methodist Church that we're proud of and um, we believe should be inclusive um, to all, so. Ooh. That's a really, really beautiful faith journey story. I have shared with multiple guests that it's it's beloved to me that um, that we've made this part of all of our interviews because 
so many of us have clergy as clergy we've gotten we have like a bullet point or an elevator pitch version of our faith journey ready to kind of whip out for somebody who asks for it and particularly if for someone who who, who is still going through the ordination process or who recently has we know how to answer that question so that we can impress somebody on the board of ordained ministry but we lose some of the most important details because so much of what God does in our lives is in the small things, not the, not the really big moments or, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. the things that seem little at the time we realize later were huge. And a lot of that nuance just gets lost, but God appears to us in the nuance, you know, I agree. I also realized while you were talking about your relationship with Fairport and you guys challenging each other, I have a funny Fairport story for you. Okay. Um, the time that I spent interning there and I was with Emily. Um, so uh, I think, so me, Emily, and then John McNeil and Margaret Scott were like the four of us were taking turns preaching on Sunday mornings. And I think me and Emily were each getting one Sunday a month. So it was like January was me and February was Emily. So, so it was my turn to preach and, um, the, the, the biggest and immediate knee jerk reaction that I got from one person in the congregation was who is that conservative chick in the pulpit? I was shocked because coming from coming from Fairport, that means something. And also it was just, I laughed out loud when when um when I think it was John that repeated that to me because I just because I was like, wow, clearly they haven't spent a whole lot of time actually talking to me. But the, the reason what were you why preaching they preaching on? What were you preaching I, on? I was preaching, I, I, I was, um, so the, I believe the text was um, Jesus telling the disciples, uh, take a look at your temple because uh, one day every stone will be laid on the ground. It was that, 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 you know, that passage. And I was preaching about the permanence and centrality of Jesus when everything else is uncertain. Mm-hmm. But and it, it, this, but but this person heard me saying Jesus is important, and just the way that that hit his ear sounded very thumpy. Oh. And it was very. It's part of why um, we've named this podcast what it is, and why we've continued to play mm-hmm. with the language because what one person perceives as conservative and what one person conceives as liberal is can be radically different. Yeah, even from moment to moment, and what one person sees as dangerous, another person sees as the commandments of Jesus, yeah. or uh, mm-hmm. you know, or the the you know the or the history of the Wesleyan movement moving forward, or you know, like it, it's it, you know it just that's how faith experience works, mm-hmm. and it's how the holy reveals itself in the midst of everything. Um, but yeah, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you went to seminary? When I was, um, 21, yeah. I went right from undergrad straight to seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took an extra year cause you could, you can do an MDiv in three. I took four, mm-hmm. um, to kind of give me a little bit more space and experience. Um, so I'm, I, yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. 21. And I was, so I think it was, that means I was 25, um, 24, 25, yeah, 25, um, when I started my first church. Yeah. So yeah, my, so yeah, my, yeah, my, I asked because my timeline was extremely similar and my beginning experiences in seminary were similar in terms of, uh, uh, and it might, there might be a slight difference between MTSO and CRCDS on this one. I can't confirm or deny, but um, I was 21, 22 when I started seminary and a good bulk of my classmates were second career students yeah. who, yep. uh, you know, they, they had lived in the world. They had worked a full-time corporate America job. They were already married with families and it felt like they just knew more than me. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, and a lot of them even were 
already licensed local pastors in the United Methodist Church. And they were pursuing seminary because they had gotten into, they had started at course of study, but they wanted to go to seminary so that they could then get ordained. And so they even already had church experience. And meanwhile, yeah, I was this extremely green 22 year old, like, and, and, and I, I wondered, you know, what God could be doing with me, you know, and how I, and I, you know, I've been in the ministry now for 11 years and I'm still too young to be a minister. I know. I I still hear that myself. I still hear that myself. But, you know, that that brought up thinking about the classmates I went to school with. There was we definitely had a young a young adult group, um, but there was there were a lot of second career lawyers, doctors, you know, you just name it all. And the one thing is, is like we're all in different places, like struggling and in, in different things. Like I didn't think I knew enough and didn't have enough life experience. But then you had some of these people who, who grew up in really conservative evangelical, perhaps, you know, denominations, and they were sort of having to deconstruct and unlearn some things. And I didn't have to necessarily do that. I felt like I was kind of starting it from scratch. Like everything I was reading was like new to me. Um, I sort of had to build something where a lot of people had to kind of like tear some things down and rebuild. Um, and so I guess we, we all had our own work to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we meet each other at all different places along the path in the midst Mm -hmm. of all of this. Um, but then that leads us to where we are right now in the United Methodist Church, where we're all kind of splintering in different directions and trying to help each other through it. Yeah. I have known you and you have shared um, in your story too. Um, I've known you to be stronger than the average bear in terms of um, being able to find mentoring relationships and be a mentor to other clergy people. I have leaned on you for that. And I know a lot of other people who have, especially clergy women. Um, And it's, it's something that I, I look to with some pain and longing in the United Methodist church now in terms of what we very badly need, because Uh we had a huge commissioning and ordinance class this year. That hasn't been true in a couple of past years. The year that I got ordained, we had one lonely commissioner from all of upstate New York. And it was a really Uh, eye-opening experience of, we don't seem to be helping people find their way in this calling. We're kind of scaring people off. And I also had that experience coming up through the process that if there were, that there were, there were several moments that I could have kind of walked away with my tail between my legs and not come back. Um, uh. So I wonder what, what wisdom you have about how we can do a much, much, much better job of taking care of and supporting one another so that instead of scaring each other away or f- making one another feel like our gifts aren't worthy and our experiences are not worth sharing that they are. Wow. Well, first, I'm thankful that you see me as stronger than the average bear in this area. <laughs> um, but I think part of that is I, you know, starting the process, I had a really wonderful mentor. Uh, Judy Alderman, who I, you know, I believe the things that she challenged me and taught me and, um, and surrounded me with wisdom have lasted all of these years. Like I still hear her talking, you know, like in the back of my, my brain, um, if I'm doing something, you know, if I'm overworking or not taking my time off or not having good boundaries, I hear that in the back of my head. Um, and I think having that, um, was so important to me and staying in ministry and not burning out as a, you know, as a, a young female pastor who, who could have just worked herself into oblivion. Um, I had that, that great mentor relationship. And, you know, one thing I've come to cherish is some of, you know, I'm very close with Beth Quick and Heather Williams, 
um, and having other clergy women who have held me accountable and love me and having that strong relationship as well has grounded me in ministry. Um, so I've experienced it. Um, and there's been so many other people along the journey as well. But um, that's one of the things I loved about being on the Board of Ordained Ministry and on the district committee. Um, I was on both of them for a long time. And I loved just getting to know my colleagues and and the work on the board helped me really get to know some people. I would have never known you. Um, uh, it's like, there's just so many, so many people. And I think like, I mean, that's how I got to know some of the young clergy women and, and just young people in general, who, since I've been off the board have contacted me and said, would you read my papers? Um, you know, could we talk about, you know, this type of thing? Um, it's because I was there and I, you know, just, I was in the right place at the right time and had a, you know, hopefully a welcoming spirit and, in, and encouraging. Um, and it's been other people that have said, you know, Rochelle, would you mentor this person or would you mentor this person? Um, and I usually say yes all the time to, um, this is the, someone asked me to mentor someone, um, recently and I'm already mentoring a candidate and at this point in my life, I had to put up those, those boundaries of one at a time. And, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to, you know, to, to do that, but I think you bring up a really good point that we need to be, do more of, of this, um, mm -hmm. maybe not formally in the, in the process, there's a formal process, but in general, I think we need, I'm not sure we've had the, um, the safe space to do that. And I think coming out of the pandemic, there's, I think I'm hopeful that, um, that we can, that we can find space to do that. I know Heather Williams is doing some work on her D-men, um, and might be planning some kind of gathering, a women's gathering specifically. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that that's very much needed, um, for us to share our stories and to support and encourage one another. Um, and it should be done frequently. It has been done mm -hmm. in the past, but it's been years since there's mm -hmm. been a women's retreat or a women's gathering um, to do something like that. So intentional, safe space for people to share their stories and encourage one another and not compete with each other because mm -hmm. there's too much of that. <laughs> it's not about that. There's a ton of competition. And when I was in seminary, I, I felt a really strong hand of that, especially because um, as I was being, so as I was making my way up through the early parts of the ordination process, I was also being educated on things about how things work. And I think the way that people said those things to me were they, they had good intentions, but they gave me too much information too soon and not in the right way. Because uh, they said things like, oh, be really careful about when you go for commissioning, because once you go for commissioning, you only have eight years before you get ordained and then your clock runs out, which was really strange advice. Yes, it is. I've, I've only, I, I've only seen one or two people actually run into that problem. And it was kind yep. of by their choice, not because the clock ran out. Like right, that was right, right. a very strange anxiety to plant into my 22 year old brain. Yes, that um, is. We also, we, we gatekeep. Mm. We, um, we, we gatekeep and we also share our bad experiences and our trauma with one another instead of using them as teachable moments we we yeah. kind of pass on the pain if we had a very especially as women women have have in historically we've doubled down on this yeah. so instead of trying to give one another shoulders to stand on we start saying, if I if I had a, a very difficult time finding my way in this, then I don't see why you should have an easy one. Like, and oh, as yes. oh, I have a great example of something yeah. that happened when I was in when I was in um, for those early years of figuring out my call to ministry when I was in college, um, and I had figured. out
Um, and I just thought, I'm like, you've got a young, a young woman who wants to go into ministry. And, you know, she had me over to the parsonage and, um, she was asking me which seminaries I had applied to. And she asked me then my GPA and she goes, Oh, well, you'll never get into Duke. Um, I was like, Oh, so I'm not smart enough. (laughs) You know, like she's, you know, and I was already feeling inadequate. Um, and then she, she looked at me and she goes, so have you always been overweight? Like brought in my, you know, my, my physical being like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a, a district superintendent who's female, who's basically sat me down and told me I was, you know, fat and stupid <laughs> all in one, all in one. T- I, I remember leaving feeling so torn down. Um, I, I pulled over on the side of the road and I just bawled my eyes out and I, I, I just could not believe that another woman would do this to somebody like it just, it, it just, and I've strived every day of my life since then to never do that, um, to another person, um, let alone another woman. Um, it, it like why tear people down? We're supposed to be building each other up. Um, I never understood that. I still don't understand why she did that. Um, I, I, I will never know. Um, but it's, it's by the grace of God that I still went into ministry after that conversation (laughs) with her. Um, just crazy to me, but yeah, I am. I am so sorry that happened. That is truly atrocious. Oh, and, um, you know, I've I've also I've found that the 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 other big piece that um, is constantly being used against us and very wrongly, in my experience of it, is when you are a woman pastor raising children, mm. and I I don't hear anybody using this against men trying to make their way in the system. Oh, have you thought about, you know, when you become, when you're, when you're working through an itinerant system, as we call it in the Methodist tradition, where you move or the bishop tells you to, you know, have you thought about how that's going to affect your wife's career? Mm. Like, or, you know, have you thought about how you're going to balance 40 hour work week with raising kids? Like, I don't think I've never, ever heard anybody bring that up to a man ever. But we use those things to scare women out of the process. And we, in the, and in the space of learning how to mentor one another, so often the message that we end up giving to one another, if it's intentional or if it's just unintentional and we just haven't learned better yet, is, well, you just can't do this with young kids. It's just it's not, it's just not possible. Don't try. You need to wait till your kids are grown and flown Mm. and then lean into this sort of gold standard for women clergy. Uh, you know, when your kids are in high school, better yet when they're in college, you know, then you can go to seminary and you'll be one of those cool second career people. Um, and you'll be older and, you know, and then you can go into the ministry and I'm glad I didn't follow advice like that in my life because a, that wasn't my calling at all. Um, I know what my first career would have been. I would have stuck with that math major at the University of Rochester and become a math teacher, but I don't think I would have been very happy. So it wasn't my calling. And I would have lost 25 years that I could have spent serving the church. Right, right. Think I don't think we truly want that unless what we want is to disempower women, which... Maybe we do, but we need to stop that. Um, at least that's a big part of the mission of this podcast, hence the name. Um, <laughs> and in my experience, what we need to do if we're mentoring one another is show one another that, yes, it's extremely difficult. Everything in ministry is extremely difficult. There are no easy voyages in the ministry. Um, but we need to just show one another what it looks like when you actually do this with kids so that we can stop fearing the unknown 
So we have Zoom meetings like you saw me at the beginning of this call where I'm wrestling my four-year-old and then figuring out how to get him a phone and a bag of chips for a few minutes. And here (laughs) I am. Um, I have breastfed in meetings with baby in tow to say, I can still do my job. The use of one organ doesn't get get in the way of the other or the other. I can still do this. Like, (laughs) yeah. Um, you know, I like, you know, when I was in seminary, I had a classmate who gave birth senior year and then brought her newborn to class with her every single day until we graduated. Like, and, um, I have preached while baby wearing multiple times with all three kids and gotten the feedback from parishioners that that's actually a really powerful image uh-huh. because it's, uh, it, it, it's, it shows them something that they hadn't seen before. And it's very empowering to women. Um, I mean, we just need to stop scaring each other. I know I had this, a young woman in my church who, I think she was a junior or senior in high school, but exploring sort of maybe a call to ministry, um, and wanted to, you know, and it was, I think it was one of my first years here at Fairport and, um, we had a great conversation in a day where she shadowed me, but one of those preconceived notions was how do you do this? She goes, I want to be a mom. Um, and I, 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 how do you do this? How do you make this work? Um, and I was just very open and honest and said, obviously it is working. <laughs> um, but you know, just to be honest and say, yeah, there's days that it, it's hard. Um, but you know, it is also a blessing to be able to show my children that I can follow my call and be a mom and, a, you know, do all of the things, um, with this balance. And you can do that. You don't have to be unhappy, um, doing something you shouldn't be, you know, or, you know, that you're not called to do. Um, but it is possible and you can do it and, um, and you can do it well. Yeah. Um, I think that, and I hope, you know, and I think she's seen that in the five years that I've been here, you know, on mm-hmm. and off that, that, it that it works. And you also need to have, you know, I think part of, well, Auburn didn't know what to do because they'd never had a female pastor and they'd never had anyone go on maternity leave and they'd never had any of any of that. So I walked them through each step of that. And I think you just have to be so intentional and just do it, do it well and Mm -hmm. communicate well and praise it when it goes well. Um, and I, I had great support when I was in Auburn for both of my maternity leaves. I had 10 weeks full pay. Um, the babies came to church with me after, you know, for a while and, um, just very open and it was great. Um, and I think in coming to Fairport, um, I mean, I had great, I, there's great, great foundations here, um, that have made Fairport the way that it is. Um, Margaret being one of them, John being one of them, they were both here for such a long time and created such a healthy congregation and normalized some of these things and, um, and embraced all of this. So, I've not ever heard an ounce of anything negative about when my kids are around or anything like that, or that I shouldn't be, that anything is wrong with any of that, um, which is wonderful. Yeah. In fact, they were, they were, Ted was here. Ted Anderson was here for two years between Margaret and myself. Um, And he did a wonderful job of, you know, I mean, that's a hard thing to come in and, you know, not that you're replacing, but on the heels of someone who'd been so beloved here for so many years. Yeah. Um, Ted did a great job um, with all of that, but they, the gift of hospitality and welcome that they gave our family, which went way beyond me, they were sending letters to, for a month before we moved here, two months before we moved here. Um, welcoming my children and sending them cartoons and coloring pages and letters from the Sunday school classes and from teachers and um, just, you know, embracing our whole family. Um, 
and also do a very good job at holding me accountable, the SPRC, about making sure I'm taking care of myself and my family as a priority. Um, that just doesn't happen. You have to have people, you know, to help lay that framework. Like that just, that's not something that just happens. <laughs> so I'm so grateful and thankful for those who came before me to lay that groundwork. And I hope that I have done that well in the places that I have served as well. Um, at least that's my, my hope and prayer. Yeah, totally. I've also found while doing this while parenting that one of the, one of the last pieces that's extremely necessary and maybe the most necessary is vulnerability with the, with my parishioners, with, uh, with everyone who sees me doing this um, and with everyone who's leading me through it because doing this while raising young children is messy and you, you need to just see the mess sometimes <laughs> because there's power in that yeah. too, especially yeah. because there's, there, there's big inherent messes in what I'm doing in particular that are just part of our lives. So, you know, listener, regular listeners to this podcast will know that oh, Emily yeah. and I are both raising autistic sons right. and um, we live uh, two blocks away from the church that we serve were neighbors of many of, you know, my parishioners and, it, you know, I've had to learn how to just be completely unabashed and you know, not trying to hide anything about the fact that, yeah, we have some pretty, we have some pretty difficult days or what in therapy speak, we would call red days in our house mm -hmm. days where there's a lot of uh, anger and anxiety and aggression going on from Daniel, my son. And, you know, where, and, and whereas in, earlier times in my ministry, I would have tried to either make sure that that doesn't ever come up in conversation mm -hmm. or make sure that that only ever happens behind closed doors or, or something to just say, uh, yeah, you know, you, you remember yesterday when you saw us walking down the street, like a cute little happy family. Well, five minutes after that, Daniel totally lost his mind and we had to carry him home like a surfboard. Like yeah, <laughs> that happens. Um, you know, I, and, you know, I have a four-year-old with a very strong sense of justice who throws temper tantrums sometimes, and it's going to happen right at church in uh -huh. front of, you know, some, some, you know, very uh, prim and proper people who aren't going to want to see that kind of behavior, but it's the cost of having younger people in your church. Yep. If you can't pay that cost, if you can't abide by that, you're not going to have them. Yeah. They're not be there. You need to accept all of them or none of them. Yeah, I, I agree with that vulnerability piece. And I, I've experienced that as well. I remember one time there was a, um, where I was doing a children's message and my kids were fighting <laughs> on the steps. Like they were literally like shoving each other, pushing each other, you know, and I, um, and in, I'm in front of everybody. Like, what do you do? You use your mom voice. You, you like, what do you do? It was just, and afterwards, I'm not sure what I even did. I just, I just mothered. I don't know what I did. Um, but afterwards, the number of people, and especially, um, it, it, it wasn't even at any age. It was just ran. It was just people. How much they appreciated seeing me, as you know, like as them. <laughs> you know, like you, you struggle as well. Sometimes your kids are fighting and, um, you know, we're not, it's not always a hundred percent perfect, um, you know, far from it. Um, but they really appreciated, um, that I, that, that that happened. And at first I thought I was so embarrassed and I was like, oh my gosh, like, how could they do this? Well, they're kids, you know, they're going to do this. <laughs> and I am, you know, pastor mom, you know, I, you know, so, uh, just roll with it. Just yeah. got to roll with it. Yeah. My kids and are just like any other kid that are sitting on the steps, you know, like yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. And when they, when our flocks see that our 
messy realities are still beautiful and beloved mm-hmm. they learn that theirs are too yes yes mm-hmm. and so then true. and then you know we mentor another generation in our young people that grow mm-hmm. up finding a real authentic home in the church rather than one that's based on appearances and pretenses and things that are not right. true of themselves. So yeah, my, my, uh, my seven-year-old Lily um, recently has, she's gone through a thing now where on Sundays, if there's nobody staffing the nursery, rather than either staying home with daddy or sitting with somebody in the pews, she wants to sit up on the altar right next to me. And usually then she starts participating in worship alongside me because she's gotten so comfortable there that she just wants to follow mommy around. So the last time that happened, um, I was blessing communion and she surprised me by coming and standing right next to me and holding the cup up. I had it in one hand and she had her little hand right here. And, you know, and then she did the same thing with the bread. And when I was saying the benediction, we, we both had our hands up. And, I love that. Yeah, and and it's just and it was just so it was so soulful and loving. It was coming a hundred percent from just a place of love and belonging to God. And people get to just see that authentically growing, and that's what we need to do. That's beautiful. Yes, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So one of our questions that we ask all of our guests is, "What's something that excites you right now?" What is something that excites me? I'm really excited to see how our denomination is going to to impact this world um, in a new way. Like as we we're creating something new, the church I think is being resurrected in in some ways, and so I'm excited to see where that's going to lead us and how how we as local churches and, and just regular people, how we're going to be changed in that process. Um, so I'm excited to see, to see some of that. And I'm, I'm very hopeful. There was, um, so there was, I went to the festival of homiletics, um, in May in Minneapolis and there was a, um, a a presenter who, um, wrote a book, which I have since bought. I have not read it all the way, but it's called Hope, a user's manual by Marianne McKibben Dana. Um, And she, and she talked about this term that she found when she, she was, she didn't present her book, but she presented this, um, uh, a new term that I'd never heard of, but it's called hope punk. And you say it fast. It's hope punk never heard it before. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. Um, and it's sort of like, like gritty hope. It's like the, um, I actually wrote down something. It's like knowing that we are here to do the work of whatever justice inclusion. Um, even if we, even if we lose, it's knowing that we are here to do that no matter what, we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, but we do know what is ours to do. And that's, it's that, that like, that hope as protest, hope as, you know, whatever. It's sort of like that, that like gritty kind of hope. Um, And that's what I see. That's what, that's where we are right now. And that's what brings, you know, I just keep working towards that. And that's the kind of hope that, that I have is that working towards justice. Um, Even if we don't know if that's what the end result is going to look like. The end result does matter, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what we're doing right now that we're working towards it. Um, So I just, I loved, I, I, she spent a whole hour talking about Lord of the Rings and Hunger Games and brought in, um, you know, the, I'm not a huge Hunger Games person, but there was, there's a scene and I do remember watching the movies, um, where one of the characters, um, dies and, um, the other character, main character puts flowers all around, um, her body. Um, and like, that's Ho-Punk. 
and because it affected the change in that, uh, you know, when that was shown on the screen and that community, whatever it's named, you know, created protest and created a change. And so it's like the, these moments are what are what matters. Um, yeah. And that brings me hope. And that's the kind of hope that I'm, I'm praying that I, I'm exemplifying in, you know, in our community. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I, so I assume and hope that you're familiar with Bishop Karen Oliveto. Oh yeah. And the work she's doing. Yeah. So we had her on the podcast a couple of weeks ago oh. and, um, yeah, she shared with us that uh, similar sentiments to you, but the word that she used was reformation. Wow. That, yeah, the United Methodist Church is going through a time of reformation. So perhaps mm -hmm. Hong Kong um, in a slightly different lens looks like, uh, you know, 95 theses being, you know, being nailed <laughs> to the door of uh, wherever you think is the most influential church um, in our, in yeah. our conscience right now. So, you know, go down the list mm -hmm. and pick one, um, maybe the front door of the conference center or something. Yeah. But, you know, the, but that, that a similar sense that it's, it's, uh, it's optimism for a much better future, but it's coming from, from a place that is ballsy and, and coming from a place of protest, you know? was Bishop Yvette Flunder and she called us to um she called us to a what was it um to create a council for a third testament <clears throat> um where um where different stories are told um where there's stories of inclusion and where women are shown in a, a a better light um and then there was um aj levine who um called us to change the lectionary um you know like doesn't have to stay that way you can change it you can get some of the anti-semitic and anti-women and you know like change it Mm -hmm. get the lectionary changed, you know, so we, you know, there was this, you know, it, to me, that goes back to what you were saying with Bishop Olivetto with the reformation piece, like, there does seem to be this movement and this hope that that the church has been forced into change. Um, and so what do we do with this opportunity? And so reformation, it is, yeah. and it's needed and wanted and necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the last and very beloved question that we always ask our interviewees on this podcast is if there was one thing you could tell the world about God, what would it be? Hmm. that you are beloved just by existing. That there is nothing that you can do more or less to make God love you any more or less than God already does at this very moment. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a social justice warrior you don't have to be the the best preacher you don't have to be um you know the most eloquent you know speaker or the best parent or any of those things to make god love you any more than god already does um that you are enough just who you are and that god will be with you on the journey inspiring, challenging, empowering, um, you to be, to be you and to make a difference in your little neck of the woods, wherever that might be. And however that might look. That's beautiful. The world needs more of that, uh, Fred Rogers type theology. <laughs> we need to hear more of it. Yes. So I agree. thank you. So thank you so, so, so much for sharing your time oh. with 
thank you so, so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. It's been a joy. Thank you for letting me share some of my story. Absolutely. It'll be a blessing to others. I promise. Thank you. Peace and love. Peace to you. Love you. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.